Welcome to the Replay Value Podcast, where we deep dive into the movies we all love to watch over and over again. I'm Phil, joined by my brother from the same mother, our co-host on the West Coast, Warren. What's up, bro? In this episode, we're going to talk about the action-adventure superhero film, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Now, the plot of this film, set two years after the first film, Peter Parker struggles to manage both his failing personal life and his duties as Spider-Man, all while he battles a genius supervillain, Doc Ock, and pursues his high school sweetheart, Mary Jane. I remember when this movie came out, I was so excited to go to the theaters because um, just from how big of a fan I was from the first film, the hype around this movie seeing it in the theaters was just palpable i mean the theaters were packed everybody was ready to get more spider-man so this really this put me on the path of a true love of superhero films even as we appreciate them today and what what it did for the genre there well this was before christopher nolan tackled batman and before the mcu so i think it's fair to say spider-man 2 was the greatest superhero film arguably that had come out since what the superman franchise uh 25 30 years earlier you could throw batman and the the keaton batmans but that franchise well, maybe yeah 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 the first burton batman yeah i don't know about the second but the, one I mean, it, it, it kind of fallen off. So yeah, this was like, you know, you had yeah, the X-Men films and this kind of catapulted it back. And this though is the one that really took it to another level. So I've loved this movie since it came out. Um, and it just the expectations were high and it met them in every single way. Yeah, what I found is interesting is it's it's one of those sequels where it surpasses and is greater than the original. And we have, uh, we don't discriminate when it comes to a franchise. We pick the best film of the franchise, whether it be the first film or the second uh, or, or whatever sequel it may be. And Sp- Spider-Man 2 joins that list with The Dark Knight, Terminator 2, Aliens, uh, and most likely Lethal Weapon 2 when we do that franchise as well. And, you know, a lot of sequels, superhero sequels have sucked. Thor 2, Iron Man 2. So it is a slippery slope. There have been some misfires. It's, you know, Kind of like a, a band when they release their, you know, they do, they for years have worked on that first batch of songs in their first album. So oftentimes that sophomore album, if you will, is a, somewhat of a letdown. Um, same way in the sense that in movies, especially in the trilogy format, sometimes the second one can cannot be the the the, the best. Of well, it. usually it's the third one in a trilogy that they don't stick the landing on. The, 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 in a trilogy, the third film That's is fair. by far the hardest film to to really uh, tie everything off, and especially if the first two films are really beloved, the third film there's a lot of pressure. Uh, That's I mean, a fair it, point because you look even look at Spider Man three, which you know we'll, we'll most likely never cover that on this podcast. Or even the Dark Knight Rises, we talk about two of the best superhero trilogies by one director. Uh, that that has its issues as well, particularly compared to the first two films. And this, like a band, I mean, with this movie, the development began immediately following Spider Man. It was such a massive hit. Uh, uh, Kevin Feige was involved. I, I saw him as a producer. I'm like, man, this guy has been around since the beginning of time when it comes to Marvel uh, movies. I mean, this guy, he's, he's had his hand in everything. Well, he has the experience there. Another producer of the film was Laura Ziskin. I thought that was interesting who did pretty woman, which we covered earlier this season. So 
Um, she actually did, a, she was a producer on all three of the Raimi Spider-Man films, uh, in addition to The Amazing Spider-Man, which was uh, uh, sadly a posthumous credit that she did pass in 2011. Um, but the reason why they announced this one right away is because if you remember the huge opening weekend success of the first film, it broke all the box office records with, you know, kind of laughable at the time, a $115 million opening weekend. Now that would be ranked uh, 47th overall here in 2020 with, of course, Endgame taking the top spot at $357 million. But yeah, yeah, so- Remember they even spoofed it in, uh, well, they, they kind of referenced it in Entourage when Vinny is in Aquaman and they're like, oh, we've got Spidey in our sights when they're trying to go for the opening weekend numbers. Uh, and like Turtle I, I, has I, the exact number memorized. Yeah, right. yeah, well, it's when they're in the valley trying to see screenings and there's rolling blackouts. A great season two episode Entourage. Yeah, uh, that, that was one of the better seasons. Yeah, um, but yeah, so it was a huge thing. Uh, it, it held the record actually for a few years until it lost it. I think, um, I think Shrek maybe, or uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Anyway, so this first one was so good. It's like you get started on a, a first, uh, the second one right away. So Sam Raimi, the director did, uh, he looked uh, to some comic book inspirations whenever uh, he actually went to figure out what he wanted to do with the story of the second film, which was a good place to start. Yeah, the story was inspired by uh, the 1967 storyline Spider-Man No More in the Amazing Spider-Man comic, the 50th issue. So that uh, that was the main comic inspiration. And you can also see that it was heavily inspired by uh, the Superman 2 movie. Yeah, I did. I did feel that, you know, that sense of like he wants to step away from his role as the hero and have a normal life, uh, much in the way that uh, Clark Kent did uh, or Christopher Reeve uh, did in the, the the Superman two film. So it did have some similarities there. Um, but I mean, to his credit, that's a great source material to pull from. You know, you've got a great comic book franchise, uh, you know, the written word to pull and uh, a great Richard Donner film to pull from too. So why, why not dip into that, uh, uh, dip into those archives? Yeah. yeah the, the best, uh, superhero films have embraced their comic roots and seem to pull from the best comics to make the movie the the best they can, but to also be true to the character uh, that, and the source material. Uh, Sony hired writers Alfred Goff and Miles Miller, and then David Kep came on as a co-writer, and then Sony hired Michael uh, Chabon uh, to rewrite their script. And essentially, Sam Raimi... Uh, read all their drafts and cherry picked what he liked from all their scripts, and then uh, just kind of made it. As, uh, ended up just kind of smashing it all together. And just to back up for a moment, the names Alfred Goff and Miles Miller. I heard those, you know, researching this film, and I was like, man, why do those sound familiar? I looked it up, and they are the main writers, or were the main writers for the Smallville television series, which you know, at the time Spider Man Two is being made. I think that that had a lot to do with them getting the reins to write Spider-Man 2 is that they've already replicated that success with the, the Superman franchise uh, with, with Smallville. But Cherry Pick is a good way to put it because the original script had uh, some things you probably wouldn't want to see on the screen or would be unrecognizable to the Spider-Man film that you know uh, and love. Uh, the original script had a younger Doc Ock that was in a love triangle with Mary Jane and Peter. So if you can imagine that, that's kind of weird. Um, and then it, it also had Doc Ock. I did find this interesting. He was the scientist that had made the spider that gave Peter his powers and had an antidote that would remove them. So I think that's where you introduce the element of him 
uh, reverting back to a quote unquote normal life and giving up the mantle of Spider-Man, but they wisely took that out. Uh, yeah, it's a little so, too connected, a little too convenient. It is, yeah. So uh, they did, you know, Raimi did want to focus on, okay, we want Doc Ock to be Peter's hero. You want him to be a sympathetic villain, and you want the fight not to be just a straight fight versus evil, but more so helping Doc Ock overcome those demons and save him as a human being, as a person, uh, to triumph over that rather than just, you know, oh, i got to destroy evil. That, that. So he wanted to keep that element, which I think was, very important to what makes this film so great. Yeah, this film, this trilogy was Sam Raimi's vision, and he made so much with so little before this, so it's nice to see a director get uh, uh, the car keys, to, to see him get uh, all the toys and to make the movie he wants to make. And I, I was surprised by that, that he got the to do that not only once, but you know three times. The Raimi trilogy is uh, very much uh, widely regarded, and uh, this film is a big, big part of that. Not his first trilogy. Uh, he did the Evil Dead trilogy <laughs> That's before true. this, of course. <laughs> uh, you got Darkman in 1990, uh, Quick and the Dead in 95, A Simple Plan in 98, which might be my favorite Sam Raimi movie. That Simple Plan mm. is just, oh, so it's good. Bill good Pullman, uh, Billy yeah. Bob Thornton. One of the best Billy Bob Thornton performances. I believe he was nominated for an Oscar that year. Really, really great. Uh, even did For Love of the Game in 99 and The Gift in 2000 with Kate Blanchett. So, uh, man, he made a lot of hits before Spider-Man. I was kind of surprised at how many great movies he'd made. That is, once you put it that way and list all those, uh, the credits there, that is, yeah, that is surprising. But, uh, I mean, very worthy hands to you know, give the reins to the to this franchise. And a big part of the reason that it is, uh, that it launched, that it, it scratched that itch so many viewers had for a great superhero franchise that, you know, we're, Still seeing people capitalize on that uh, to this day, but um, one of the one of the things I love about this film, you know, it came out in two thousand and four, but su- surprisingly, being that it's sixteen years old, some of the a lot of the special effects age pretty well. I was surprised by that that it doesn't. So many movies you see around that area have the real rubbery CGI, and yeah, this movie has its moments of that, but for the most part, it looks pretty good. Well, I mean, Sam Raimi had 12 storyboard artists uh, working on the movie, so everything was really thought out uh, with the shots and the visual effects. And the mantra they had going into the movie was, uh, the visual effects team, the worst shot in Spider-Man 2 has to be better than the best shot in Spider-Man 1. Uh, one of the things they used that they, they briefly introduced in Spider-Man 1 was the quote-unquote Spider-Cam those was the camera system that they used for the point of view shots when it would show like Spider-Man soaring in the city. So they only used it one time at the very, very end of the first Spider-Man film. Uh, but they used it pretty liberally uh, in Spider-Man 2. But what they would do is they would take, they would digitize, get digital mock-ups of the city. And then they would shoot it at six frames per second, which is very slow. And then speed it up to make it look like he was soaring. But the way that they were able to do that, it, it actually was very cost effective to get those shots that way. So it did give you the sense that you were Spider-Man soaring through the city. So yeah, it was real important they did that because Spider-Man isn't a you know he's not a five, ten, or fifteen story that character. The guy operates at seventy five, eighty, a hundred uh, stories. Uh, you know he's slinging around skyscrapers. So this spider cam brought a sense of vertigo uh, that I really think was missing from the f- 
action scenes in the first film. That's just in one way that this movie is superior to the original, uh, just in the, the addition of the spider cam and what that did for the sequences. Yeah, they took a lot of those ideas or the groundwork and they just polished it up um, quite a bit for this film. Another way that they use special effects uh, practically to help this film age very well is that the tentacles for Doc Ock were mostly real. Uh, They had a a rubber girdle and foam rubber tentacles for him to work with that was controlled by puppeteers, and they choreographed their movements and practiced them with Alfred Molina so that it came off as real in the film. And they only used CGI when they absolutely had to. Essentially, those scenes where the tentacles are pushing uh, Doc Ock up a building, or he's walking. Or he's like on walking the, on the arms. Yeah, uh, yeah, it, 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 yeah, exactly. Where you have to add in the CGI in order for it to be believable. And like you said, it aged pretty well. And they didn't want to give like real mechanical, like computerized sounds. They used real Foley they, with motorcycle chains and piano wires to capture that uh, that organic, organic in a sense, that just real visceral in your face, um, practical uh, element to it. Well, there was four tentacles, and it took four puppeteers to operate each one. So at any one time, you would have 16 puppeteers operating Doc Ock's mechanical tentacles. Uh, it was done by Edge FX. Uh, they, they called them the Death Flowers, uh, and, and, and Molina named each one. He had a, a name for them. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of ridiculous, but, I mean, it helps him get to the character and all that. I, I guess it kind of makes sense. The, uh, the names were Larry, Harry, Mo and Flo, with Flo being the primary tentacle that did a lot of the communicating with him or the detailed work when he was um, operating on something. All in all, though, the visual effects took 16 weeks to complete and cost upwards of $54 million. I mean, Spider-Man and the other movies raised the bar in 02 and 03, so they felt like they had to raise the bar even further with the sequel. And I think that's always the pressure you have with a follow-up. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be better. And... As you said, Spider-Man 2 somehow lived up to the hype and answered the bell. Well, the good thing is, though, is that you get the studio backing you up. It's like, okay, we've, especially with the success of the first film, is that it's like, okay, we can give you the budget for this. Yes, go out and and make it happen. Uh, Filming started in April 2003. It was delayed by two months because Tobey Maguire had some uh, back issues he was dealing with. And they started shooting before the script was complete, which I just find shocking that, a movie this good, they didn't even have a finished script. That's crazy. That happens uh, sometimes with films, and even films that we've covered on this podcast where they're still uh, tweaking or fine-tuning, in a sense, the script, or they don't have it quite figured out. But for a major blockbuster like this, they were working up against a timeline. Whenever, um, whenever the first film opened huge, they said, all right, this date, like it was May of 2004, this is when it's going to come out. It's going to be called The Amazing Spider-Man. So they kind of put that calendar date out there as a goal line. So I can see why you're sticking to that production schedule. you got to make it happen in one way or the other. Uh, Sam Raimi has said he responds well to that deadline, that, that he works well towards that. It's good for him to have a date he needs to get to. He somehow finds a way to get it done, and he did. And it's just amazing the how good the movie is, considering, again, because you can make a 
bad movie from a good script, but you can't make a good movie from a bad script. You that's that's the that's the rule of thumb. So the fact that they started before they even had the scripts finished is just rolling the dice. So it's really believing in the filmmaker, his vision, and just knowing that he's somehow going to pull it together. Yeah. Uh, principal photography in New York City for about a month, but mostly in Los Angeles on sound stages because it was a highly stylized version of New York City. Uh, but over a hundred sets and locations total. Ten major sets they used on the sound stages. The biggest and most impressive one being Doc Ock's Lair. Uh, they had to actually taken an, uh, an eight-week hiatus to com- finish building it because it took 15 weeks to complete. Which I, I thought that, that was insane that they would take that much of a break and halt production for that. Uh, and when I read that, I was like, how? But then going back to the production timeline, it makes sense. It's like that's what they needed to do to service the film – if they'd already started those other processes, that I mean, it's, it's not something that you're working that quick off a turnaround. You can have prepared. You have to take the time to do that. So that may, it makes sense, all things considered. Sam Raimi, being a great director, great directors are cinephiles, generally speaking, uh, because they watch so many movies, they see everything, and you can see a lot of. Uh, Great movies that are uh, have touches in Spider-Man 2. Of course, he has a lot of homages to the Evil Dead trilogy. Uh, you know, the tentacles and the mini chainsaw. And there's there's little uh, hints at it there. He references Superman, you know, where Tobey Maguire runs in an alley unbuttoning his shirt while changing his clothes. Oh, yeah, that's a, like yeah, that's right. Yeah. Superman. Has a little uh, flirt with Raiders of the Lost Ark where, once again, uh, Alfred Molina has a conflict with spiders. Kind of a little, <laughs> oh, yeah. little uh, I forget little about that. Uh, tongue yeah. in cheek moment there. And it remembers King Kong from 1933. Some of the shots where you're seeing Dr. Octopus climbing up the buildings and the French Connection, where the sequence in which Spider Man chases the uh, elevated subway. And there's a few other ones, but those are some of the main ones. Yeah, I didn't even think about that for the French Connection. I never, when I watch it, I don't do that. But I mean, just like as someone is like as venerated and experienced as Sam Raimi. They are a history, a film historian. They're a fan of that. They're gonna, they're gonna pull those from those influences to to make the, make their own path. Music of the film, the score by the great incomparable Danny Elfman. He also did the first uh, Spider-Man film, so he re- re- did return for for this one. And they're gonna say he did the first Batman film. Come on, man! Well, that, that's Batman what I, you're, theme. you're getting ahead of me a little bit there. So yeah, I kind of look at Danny Elfman. That he has like it's. It's a double-edged sword. It's like, which version of Danny Elfman are you getting? It's like, he's so diverse in what he can do with a film score. I mean, you have like the old classic Elfman with like Beetlejuice, Nightmare Before Christmas, Batman. But then you have him doing something like a huge action blockbuster like Spider-Man. Um, so it's kind of crazy to get that uh, those, those two sides, that dichotomy there. Uh, however... Even in a big-budget film like Spider-Man, you still get a sprinkle of the old Danny Elfman, which I appreciate in this soundtrack. Like uh, he brought a lot of the old the themes back, and just you know did slight variations of them for this film. But he got to do uh, a new one for the Doc Ock theme, and you can kind of when you listen to that theme, you can't hear the elements of like that kind of creepiness that you get in the old Elfman uh, style. So I did, I did appreciate that uh, hearing those old elements. And then as far as other music goes, and I hope I'm not stepping on uh, best scenes, uh, but (laughs) 
when they play raindrops keep falling on my head when peter try when spider-man tries to become peter parker it just i just love hearing that just it's so comically fits that scene he's like tripping on the sidewalk watching the police go by just munching on a hot dog Okay. Uh, so it yeah, it's great. Us. You know, the first great movie that song was used was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I did not know. And that. In fact, <laughs> it, yeah, I, I forget if it was Paul Newman or Robert Redford was furious about them using the song. I think it was Newman because it was in, it was in like the marketing of the movie, and he thought it made it look cheesy. But now, <laughs> in, in retrospect, it's uh, it's beloved. Yeah, it just it's such a funny scene. And we'll move on to the stars of the picture. All right, Mr. Demille, I'm ready for my close-up. And when I say stars, I mean stars. Seven stars, legit stars in this movie. Three Emmy nominees, two Oscar winners, and three Oscar nominees. The first movie to use big stars for superhero movies was Richard Donner's Superman. And Raimi followed that approach, as did Nolan with his trilogy. And you can see that starting at the top of the call sheet with Tobey Maguire as the superhero, the protagonist. Spider-Man, Peter Parker, and it almost didn't happen quite famously. Uh, he, Tobey Maguire was suffering back pains. That's why they delayed production to begin with two months, as I covered uh, earlier in the episode. But they, the studio went as far as to have Jake Gyllenhaal lined up to replace him in the role. Well, as we stated, there was a tight calendar production timeline. Like the movie, they needed it to happen. It was a train that was going down the tracks and... It was, you know, UAW need a real Spider-Man to stop it. I mean, it was, it was going to, they were trying to hit a release date. So Tobey Maguire had made a film Seabiscuit and he had gotten injured on that to, I mean, to the point to where, you know, he was seriously, a serious injury to his back. And there was kind of questions, was he going to be able to return to the role? Uh, and that's when they were pursuing Jake Gyllenhaal and kind of had that what if scenario. And he, they did come pretty close to, 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 to him signing and replacing McGuire. Uh, but you know, as we know that that did not happen, uh, but it was from that film Seabiscuit. And also, uh, Entourage kind of spoof or reference that moment. Remember, they were going to have Jay Gyllenhaal replace uh, Vincent Chase and Aquaman too, when he wasn't oh, going to yeah. do it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, who, who, who's directing? I can't believe Cameron's ready to do it already. Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith. <laughs> um, and and. Tommy McGuire also made some uh, salary demands. Uh, his agent asked for $25 million or 10% of the gross, whichever was greater. Amy Pascal and Sony Pictures rejected the offer. And, and Tommy McGuire ended up uh, coming off his holdout and, 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 and ultimately joined the movie, of course. Yeah, had some Robert Downey Jr. demands right there to get that done. Oof. He would have walked away with uh, with some Jack Nicholson Batman money or the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man money, you know, $60, 70000000 million for, for one role. Uh, and, and this was really hard to do because I think there's some great performances in this movie. I mean, there's some career-defining roles for three actors in this movie. Uh, Kirsten Dunst is sensational, and Alfred Molina is great as the villain. You could almost give the MVP to either one of them and we'll cover them here in a moment but I got to go ahead before we move on and give it to Tobey Maguire as Peter Parker is the MVP and in superhero movies the villain tends to upstage the hero and, 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 and Alvaro Molina nearly does that but he ultimately doesn't have the screen time that Toby he doesn't, does. And when yeah. you look at the movie, I mean, it's hard to give the MVP to anyone else when they're, they're having the ball in their hands like Russell Westbrook. I mean, he, he's putting up triple doubles here. I mean, hmm. it's he's doing everything. His workload physically with the, what he's having to do in the action sequences on top of the emotional 
uh, depths that he has to go to with Mary Jane and even the betrayal with his friendship with Harry. I mean, they're asking Toby to do a lot and he rises to the occasion. I mean, there's a genuine, authentic nature that this character has to have, a, a lovable outcast that helps others and, and make that believable. He is the linchpin of this movie and of the franchise. Without McGuire, it doesn't work. Yeah, you got to pick him. I mean, just again, the screen time thing alone. It, you know, when this movie first came out, uh, probably the first 10 years after it came out, I watched it a ton. It was surprising when I watched it in preparation for this podcast how little Doc Ock is actually in the film because I thought for sure he would be your MVP. But all things considered, you got you to go uh, totally back. Yeah, uh, Tobey Maguire, uh, a worthy MVP, uh, the most valuable performance in the film. And if anybody, I'd almost give it to, to Kirsten Dunst because she is the uh, – her performance drives the love story, and the camera loves her, and the audience does too. I mean, we are right there with her. So you can almost give it to her, but at the end of the day, uh, there's so many great performances in the movie, but got to give it to our leading man. Speaking of Kirsten Dunst as Mary Jane Watson, uh, already a star, I mean, a successful child star and then transitioning to a successful adult star, that's an amazingly rare feat. Generally doesn't happen, and she somehow pulled it off. I mean, before this, we all know her, of course, from Interview with a Vampire. One of the best child performances ever. I mean, so good in that movie. Holds her own with Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise. Jumanji, anybody? Also, Little Women. And then she started transitioning from a child actor to an adult actress with Virgin Suicides. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Spider-Man. One of those rare, you know, actresses or actors that has been able to make that transition so smoothly, and the way that she did. Um, and she had a, even some some uh, different genre, I guess, some more uh, popcorn food, like uh, Bring It On, uh, you know, which is a cult classic uh, that she had done kind of during that period as well. So, nonetheless, though, this is still the movie she's most known for, uh, even to this day, is Mary Jane Watson. Well, of course. I mean, yeah, it's it's a huge role. I mean, it's, it's Spider-Man, for goodness sake. Yeah, so I can see why. And the interpretation of her MJ is just so layered, and the performance is so alive. It, you know, it's more than just that damsel in distress. She just brings so much more to the role and to, to the screen. Well, the relationship, uh, you know, a lot of what, defines the characters of Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson is their relationship with each other. So you have to have that chemistry there and that emotional connection between the two. And she really, I mean, she, she, yeah, she carries uh, a, a lot of that on screen. Uh, I would say she does a better job of that than Tobey Maguire in the film and that she is so good at pulling that side of the light uh, of the relationship. Oh, she makes the love story work. She's the, as I said, he's the linchpin of the movie. She, it takes care of the department of the love story. She's the linchpin of that. And as I've always said, the greatest movies always have love at the center, and she makes that part of the movie work. Talking about the biggest benefactor of this movie is Oscar nominee James Franco as Harry Osborn. I mean, he went on to do a lot of big stuff after this movie. I, and I think at the end of the day, he is the person who, who, who gained the most from being in this franchise, specifically this, the, uh, this movie. Uh, he had some misses in 05 through 07, uh, Spider-Man three and the Tristan and Isolate or whatever that movie was. Uh, Tristan and he sold. Yeah. I forgot about that. Wow. But it wasn't until 2008 where he really elevated as an actor. He broke into prestige films with Milk, and then he had the great comedy Pineapple Express. That was so good. Oh, yeah. And then in 2010, he had 127 hours. And then 2013, he uh, reunited with Raimi to make Oz great uh, and powerful. 
Yeah, which is an underrated film. Oz the Great and Powerful. I I, I did enjoy that. Had some. It was uh, you know, not the best, but it, it was underrated. I'll say. But yeah, he. I, I would say 120. It. It's good. I'd say 127 hours though is where it really. That was his Oscar nod. Uh, that yeah. Yeah, the Oscar nod is yeah that put him uh, and then getting in that uh, not the brat pack whatever it's called with Seth Rogen and and all those all those guys to kind of you know looping into there for the comedy angle that yet yeah, that's where his um, his career really really took off but it started with Spider Man yeah yeah and he should have got another Oscar nod you could argue for Disaster Artist most recently in 2017 that was love that that was a great movie. It was a very contentious year for uh, best actor nominees. So I could, Fair uh, enough. A lot of people thought he would get. He it, was so on the. Yeah. He was in the top ten. He was close. Alfred Molina as the supervillain antagonist, uh, Doc Ock, Doctor Otto Octavius. Uh, he had mostly done independent movies. Uh, every now and then did a studio picture. Of course, we know him from Raiders of the Lost Ark. I uh, had that small role at the beginning, but this was his first big role, first villain role in a big, big studio picture. Sam Raimi saw him in the movie Frida and felt that he had the physicality that was required for the role. And so he was, without really realizing it, uh, he was on the short list of actors that Raimi was looking at for. And he was a huge fan of Spider-Man and really jumped into the Doc Ock character, started physically training right away. But uh, it did come down to him and a few others, uh, also in consideration, believe it or not, Robert De Niro for Doc Ock, uh, Ed Harris, uh, who we, you know, he's a great actor. We saw make a great turn as a, uh, understandable motivations as a villain in the rock. Uh, and then Sam Neill, uh, from, you know, of course, Jurassic Park and Vent Horizon, many other films. Uh, all, th- that was essentially the, the, the final grouping of four there, uh, that was considered, but Molina was the front runner, of course. Well, yeah, you got to give it a lot of consideration because every great hero needs a great villain. Uh, so you don't want to make the wrong choice. And when you look at Doc Ock here, he's among the top cinema comic book supervillains that are a distant second to Ledger's Joker. You, that's he's up there by himself. Heath Ledger's Joker performance, but then you got Doc Ock is is right there amongst the top uh, ones uh, after that. It was a very well-written villain, and even in the Spider-Man game that came out uh, on the PS4 a, a couple years ago, he's the one of the main villains there. It really is the main villain, and you know it. The, the story, in much the same way this film does, revolves around that. It's a very you know you buy into it, you see his motivation. So uh, it's just a it's a very well-written villain. He's got a Walter White quality. He's a misunderstood man that becomes a monster. Briefly talking about the co-stars of the movie, as we mentioned, an ensemble from top to bottom. Uh, J.K. Simmons, Oscar winner as J. Jonah Jameson. He's played the character four times, of course, the three in Raimi's trilogy, uh, and then most recently uh, reprised the role in Far From Home. Uh, And it looks like he's probably going to play that character for a few more movies. So at the end of the day, it could be seven, eight times that he's played J. Jonah Jameson. (laughs) I I could see why they brought him back. that's a difficult role to recast. He's so perfect in the J. Jonah Jameson mm-hmm. role that, I mean, why, why bring Cause it's still, it's else? how often are we doing a movie where the character is still active? Like the, the, the actor is still actively playing the character. Um, I know, right? Yeah. Uh, Rosemary Harris as May Parker. She uh, also played uh, the character three times. In fact, there are 10 actors that appeared in all three films of Raimi's trilogy. So he kept a consistent uh, foundation That's within good. his cast. Wow. 
which is what you ultimately want. Uh, Dylan Baker as Dr. Kirk Connors. He also played another doctor in a, a different way in A Requiem for a Dream, if you remember him in that. Oh, did not. Wow. Interesting. Okay. Did yeah, not, it's when uh, Leto goes in the hospital and his arm looks... <laughs> okay, we don't need to know about it. Yeah, okay, I remember yeah. the scene very well. All right. Okay, <laughs> it's, okay. It's... Uh, Willem Dafoe, of course, Oscar nominee. He makes more of a cameo appearance, um, and it was because he was walking home in New York City and walked by the Spider-Man 2 set and thought he'd stop in and say hello, and then they were like, well, hey, you want to shoot a cameo? And they ended up throwing him in the end of the movie. I figured that would be there would be more of a plan to that to bring him back. It's surprising that they just did it on a whim like that but mm-hmm. uh, yeah sure well same thing with cliff robertson they brought him back more or less in a cameo role for that one scene uh you have elizabeth banks as uh miss brant uh bruce campbell as the the uh, uh snooty usher uh marvel icon stan lee as a man dodging debris and i gotta give a shout out to a famous acting teacher uh, head of the acting school i went to joanne Barron. Uh, she's in a scene she plays a skeptical scientist Mm, okay. Um, Bruce Campbell and Stan Lee, they, you know, Bruce Campbell being from the Evil Dead trilogy has, you know, close uh, connections there with Sam Raimi. So he played, he came in as a different actor in, in each of the the Raimi films. And then the the incomparable, the um, the Master Jedi, uh, Stan Lee of the, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, of course, had a cameo in all of those films. Moving on to the stats and accolades of Spider-Man 2 release date was June 30th, 2004. Uh, it was originally slated, I think I said earlier, for May. So they missed it a little bit there. Uh, so they, they went and pushed for that July 4th uh, opening weekend. Uh, on a budget of $200 million opening weekend, it did pull in $88.1 million in about 4,000 theaters. So you may think like it's a step down from the opening weekend of the first film, but that was you know the primetime May slot. This one, that July 4th weekend, that first weekend in July, when it opened, it actually did set the record uh, for that opening weekend. I think until like um, Revenge of the Sith broke it a year later, but it did Star set Wars that- Star Wars movie. Yes, the Star Wars, of course, broke it in 2005, um, but it, it did actually have the biggest opening for that weekend at, at the time. That record's been back under the Marvel banner for a while now, since 2012, when the first Avengers uh, broke it with like $200 million, and then I think uh, from there on with Infinity War and Endgame, I mean, it's got a, a ownership on that record for a while. Well, no, you're saying just overall opening weekend. I, I was saying just for the July 4th opening weekend, $88.1 million. I know it sounds low, but it didn't break that record at the time, even though it opened it for less than the, uh, than the first movie. Um, domestically, it did go on to make $373.5 million. Worldwide, $788.9 million. So early 2000s, almost, almost got up to the billion-dollar mark for um, – uh, for worldwide box office rank for the year finished third uh, home media was released on vhs and dvd on november 30th 2004 it was the last spider-man movie to get a vhs release and we talked about um you know the, the dvd releases uh, for films how finding nemo was number one uh from a monetiz- monetarily speaking spider-man's number uh, spider-man 2 is number two in that ranking of all time so just interesting how that correlated Mm. Uh, it came out in, uh, on Blu-ray in 2007, and then that is also when they released the Spider-Man 2.1 uh, edition of the film, which they added eight minutes of new footage to the to the feature. 
they did add some new scenes, but mostly they just extended what was already there. Like, for instance, you got a longer version of Peter Parker's birthday party. So that added some, but I think overall it was mainly just a, a marketing tactic uh, to well, get sales. Yeah. There was also like an action sequence in a library where Doc Ock and Spider-Man were fighting that the VA uh, um, visual effects didn't finish because, you know, at the end, of, you, you can't afford everything and they were getting pretty high up there with the budget. I mean, you just mentioned $200 million at the time that was tied with Titanic for the most expensive movie ever made. But uh, it was a marketing push, too, I think, to, you know, to sell to, to sell copies of the film, to give people a reason to buy it again. They had new new special features that they added and things like that. So with a running time at two hours and seven minutes, uh, it covers a lot in that runtime. It feels like, uh, with everything, it, such an epic movie, uh, it, 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 you think of Spider-Man two, you're like, Oh, that's like two hours and a half and a half. Right. But no, it's, it's barely over two hours. Well, I think it's the expectation you have with uh, a lot of the, uh, huge tent pole blockbuster superhero titles. Now is like, Two and a half hours is almost the expectation. Heck, if it's like something like Endgame, it's nearly three hour. I think maybe Endgame's a little over three hours. So I think it's like uh, two yeah. hours fifty nine minutes. Yeah, that's right. Maybe, it, yeah, yeah. So there, there is that expectation there. So two hours is a all things considered is a pretty slim superhero film when you compare it to what comes out today. Yeah, and another common rating for superhero movies, PG-13, uh, with a body count of 16, eight doctors, four cops, a taxi driver, a civilian, and uh, Mr. and Mrs. Octavius. Scores of the film, Rotten Tomatoes, 93%, off 274 reviews, which, uh, as we've established, means nothing, but got to cover the scores nonetheless. IMDb, 7.3 out of 10, cinema score A-, and a meta score of 83 based off 41 critics. It's the best-received Spider-Man movie to date. Even after Far From Home and Homecoming, it's still critically the, the most uh, acclaimed. Homecoming's pretty good. It's pretty, pretty, pretty good. Oh, no, the, the, those are great, but I'm saying from a, a score standpoint, how it was received in the uh, cinema community, Spider-Man 2 is still the most uh, uh, garnered uh, and uh, has the, the most accolades. I, I get it. Yeah, uh, That's why we're covering I mean, it's very deserving of that. Yeah, universal acclaim across the board. Andrew Saris uh, thought it was a vast improvement over the first Spider-Man movie. More depth. It was more grown up. Uh, Roger Ebert, four out of four stars. Uh, the first movie, he gave 2.5 out of four stars. So another uh, Ebert as well looked at this film as an improvement uh, from the first Spider-Man movie. Uh, he compared it to Superman uh, from 1978, said it was amongst the best of the genre, and Roger Ebert, ranked it the fourth best film of the year on his top 10 list. Oh, wow. Um, I, you look back at the first Spider-Man film and, and for what it was at the time, you appreciated it, but Spider-Man two is so good. It just made Spider-Man one, not as good. It's very campy and cheesy in some parts. Great in others. You know, Willem Dafoe is a great villain, but at the same, it's just, it just feels you like get the essential Spider-Man origin story, which thankfully they haven't overplayed like Batman. I mean, how many times have we seen the pearls fall off the necklace? I mean, we get so many iterations of the, the origin story for Batman. At least they haven't overplayed it with Spider-Man. Uh, they, they covered it for us and they did the chore and, uh, they haven't revisited it since, uh, awards of the film, one Oscar win. This is the only 
live-action Spider-Man film to win an Oscar. So further supporting uh, the fact that it is the most well-received Spider-Man movie to this day. Uh, the Oscar win was for visual effects, two other nominations, sound mixing and sound editing, two BAFTA nominations, visual effects and sound, five Saturn Award wins, best fantasy film, best director, best actor, best writer, and best visual effects. Wow, swept a lot of the major categories at the Saturn Awards. Uh, and it was an AFI Award winner, Movie of the Year, made their top 10 list for 2004. Another 19 wins and 56 nominations. The Grammy record of the year for 2004 uh, at these uh, ceremonies, it was Here We Go Again by Ray Charles and Nora Jones. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, actually, it's funny that you said that word there because the Billboard Hot 100 for the year of 2004 was Yeah by Usher featuring Little John and Ludacris. <laughs> so, all right. Yeah. What? I just said all right. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> Movies of uh, 2004, top of the box office. Number one was Shrek 2. Number two was Harry Potter, Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm, number four fun. was The Incredibles. And number five was The Passion of the Christ. Wow, man. What a great year for film. I did not realize that. Some of my favorite, like Prisoner of Azkaban, one of my favorite Harry Potters, The Incredibles, one of my favorite Pixar films. I mean, jeez. And Passion of the Christ, we got uh, the sequel coming up, uh, The Passion of the Christ Resurrection, next couple years. Was that really a thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. Gibson's got a pre-production. Uh, Oscar winner for Best Picture, Million Dollar Baby. That was uh, coronation for Clint Eastwood and Morgan Freeman, finally winning yeah. his uh, first uh, acting Oscar. Razzie winner for Worst Picture, Catwoman, starring Halle Berry. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So the other spectrum of superhero movies, we're talking about the, uh, the, the uh, top form example with Spider-Man 2 and then... <laughs> You're talking Catwoman. It's uh, amongst the worst of the genre. <laughs> you throw enough shit against the wall, I guess something's going to stick. Uh, I think so many people had seen the success of Spider-Man in 2002. They were trying to replicate that. Was like, What superhero can we pull from to do this with? So. TV shows of the year. Top scripted shows. Nielsen ratings. Number one, CSI. Number two, Desperate Housewives. Number three, CSI Miami. And number four, Without a Trace. Emmy Best Comedy Series winner, Everybody Loves Raymond, in its last season. And the Emmy Best Drama Series winner, Lost, in its first season. Prices of the year, gas was $1.88 a gallon. A movie ticket, average price was $6.21. A new car was $22,000. A new house was $221,000, all on an average income of $53,974. Events of 2004, the 28th Olympiad, Summer Games in Athens, Greece, uh, Nipplegate uh, with Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake at the 38th Super Bowl where the Patriots beat the Panthers 32-29 for their second title. Also, the Boston Red Sox won their first World Series since 1918, escaping the curse of the Bambino, and President George W. Bush is re-elected president. All right, moving on to our best scenes and lines from Spider-Man 2. Um, I was surprised that I had as many in contention for my runner-up and winner. Uh, I thought I would just have a few. But, man, there was I have a lot, so just fair warning. But we'll start with your runner-up, Warren. My runner-up, and as you said, uh, 
very difficult to narrow these down, but I did it, uh, and we're not going to get them all. Uh, but uh, my runner-up scene, it's when Peter Parker has decided to stop being Spider-Man because so many bad things have happened to him, and uh, uh, he, you know, he's done being him. Uh, no worries now, and uh, you have the montage of uh, raindrops falling on my head. That's that's it, man. <laughs> Which I mentioned earlier. I, I love that. I was concerned that I was going to st- step on maybe an honorable mention. I didn't expect it to be a runner-up, but that's that's good. I I, I can appreciate that. It's a it's a great scene. First time we saw that was in Superman two, but Spider Man builds on that and then makes it its own in a different way. And I I just love that sequence. It's not something we're accustomed to seeing in a superhero movie where people are crying for help and he just kind of looks he's like "Eh," and he just (laughs) walks off it isn't until he sees a kid in peril that it it motivates him to take action which is fucking awesome but uh i digress my runner-up and it was tough to narrow it down but i i had to just show some appreciation for Raimi's roots uh and what he did with the operating room horror scene and the way that that was cut I mean, it's just like the, the lighting of it. I mean, first off, no operating room is going to look that way with that dim lighting. And just the, but it fit the horror element aspect. And just the way it's cut with the, the chainsaw and just um, the screams. I mean, it was just at first you kind of laugh. It's almost kind of cheesy. But just I appreciate that scene so much and that he was able to fit a horror movie scene in a huge action blockbuster of Spider-Man. It's great. Yeah, that really plays to Raimi's strengths because of how much uh, he's like a, one of the masters of, of horror with his Evil Dead trilogy. And, and there are some, uh, as I said, the, the Evil Dead homages, even with the, the you get a, a the point of view with the tentacle camera and that's supposed to be the force from the Evil Dead moving towards the doctors and the yes. nurses in the operating room. That's and, so and, good. And so, uh, so great. Uh, yeah, uh, worthy uh, runner-up. And then my winner, and I'm, I think we're going to match up on this one, it's the... Um, the elevated train fight, the whole sequence there. Yeah, the whole sequence, the uh, the train fight is badass, uh, but when Spider-Man, it culminates when Spider-Man stops the train. And that movie would be great without that scene, but that just makes it, that just takes it to another level. It's, yeah, no, no surprise we matched up on that one. What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. Yeah, the willpower that Spider-Man displays there and, uh, there's really a lot of great little heroic moments within the scene, even after he stops the train, uh, his exchanges with the civilians, and then how they, even with the kids, and then when they give him his mask back, and then how the people stand up for him against Doc Ock. It's pretty great. It's very good. Uh, good emotion to it, and you know, good connection of Spider-Man with the city. I love it. We found something. Spider-Man. All right, what were some of your honorable mentions? Honorable mention is uh, is a shot uh, where uh, Mary Jane and Peter are in the coffee shop, and then the car comes through the window. Oh, that's pretty cool. Pretty great. Yeah. Uh, some master filmmaking at work there with how he pulls that off. And then uh, I, when uh, 
he's swinging through the, the, the New York skyline. The cops are pursuing the bad guys. The theme is playing, and then he runs out of web, and he just falls to the top <laughs> of the roof. <laughs> Again, something you hadn't seen before. But you know he's okay, but it's, it's still a, it's kind of a, 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 a laugh-out-loud moment. Uh, kind of to play off of that, I had an honorable mention where he's trying to return as Spider-Man and he runs and it shows the slow motion sprint. He leaves off the building. Then plummets down and uh, hits the cars and gets up and he says, My back! Oh, my back! Which was a playoff of him actually injuring his back. Uh, that, that Sam Raimi and because when, when Tobey Maguire came back from that, he was all in. He wanted to do his own stunts as much as he could. Uh, so him and Raimi kind of had an inside joke with the, the back problems that he had had and gotten over. Um, did you have any other honorable mentions? And then my last honorable mention, it's the it's the dream vision with Uncle Ben. It's a, I find it somewhat moving, uh, not as moving as with uh, uh, Aunt May later, but uh, it's you get the great line of uh, with power comes great responsibility, and it, it's a lesson reminder for Peter. It's when he ultimately decides he's not going to be Spider Man though, because he decides not to take Uncle Ben's hand. But it's kind of a Brando Superman 2-ish in a way where he's getting advice from his father after he's passed. It just made me think of Brando from Superman 2 in that scene. I can't live your dreams anymore. I want a life of my own. You've been given a gift, Peter. With great power comes great responsibility. Take my hand, son. No, Uncle Ben. I'm just Peter Parker. I'm Spider-Man. No more. No more. Mister, yeah, just that 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 connection lives on, even though that they've they've passed. Um, no, but I, I I can see that. Um, I had a, f- a few. I'll just fire through them very quickly. One and it was almost my runner-up. Uh, you know I'm a sucker for him. Uh, it was the o- it was the opening sequence, but this was for the credits. This is a sequel film, and the credits are so beautifully storyboard, almost like a comic book. The the uh, events of the first film as it's introduced, showing the credits, the actors and whatnot. I remember seeing that in the theater, and I was just blown away about how well that they caught the audience up. Yes, most likely you've seen the first film, but it was just a quick reminder without using any dialogue of like, here's the major things that happened in the first film. Now let's jump into the second. Yeah, but it's also showing you the movie actors and their characters uh, lit and portrayed as the comic version of Spider-Man. So it's kind of taking the comic universe that Spider-Man originated from the source material, marrying it with their film and kind of making it one where it's really kind of cool what they're doing there. It's very good. It's, I mean, it's that, that is extremely good how they did that. Um, again, almost my runner up. Uh, uh, the one is between J Jonah Jameson and Peter Parker, where he wants to take him to the high society event. And Parker asks for an advance of pay. Chief, 
I found Parker. Where you been? Looking for you all morning. Why don't you pay your phone bill? Mad scientist goes berserk and we don't have pictures. I heard Spider-Man was there. Where were you? Photographing squirrels? You're fired. Chief, the planetarium party. Oh, right. You're unfired. I need you. Come here. What do you know about high society? Oh, uh, well, I... Yeah, don't answer that. My society photographer got hit in the head by a polo ball. You're all I got. Big party for an American hero. My son, the astronaut. But could you pay me in advance? <laughs> you serious? Pay for what? Standing there? The planetarium tomorrow night, 8 o'clock. There's the door. And just that laugh that J. Jonah Jameson has. It's just, he's so perfect in that role. Uh, and then my last honorable mention is the emotional moment of when Harry unmasks Spider-Man. If only I could cause you the pain that you've caused me. First, we'll see who's behind the mask. You can look into your eyes as you die. Peace. No. It can't be. It's funny you mentioned that moment because the moment I think is better, and if we're talking unmasking, is when Mary Jane sees Peter in the suit without the mask for the first time. She, you can just see that like it all comes together, and she falls in love with him in that moment without saying a word. The fact that this movie has both of those within, I think maybe about ten or fifteen minutes of each other, maybe less than that, where these two huge figures in his life have unmasked him and seen him for who he is. And they both carry huge emotional weights in very different ways. And lasting uh, repercussions that carry on. Yes. It's very, oh man, I, this is a, it's a very good film. Um, uh, that was it for my honorable mention. So we'll jump into our best lines. Uh, we'll go back to you with your runner up. Runner up. It's more of an exchange between J. Jonah Jameson and Peter. It's when uh, <laughs> Jameson says, I'll give you 150. 300. That's outrageous. Done. Give this to the girl. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs> I have that as an honorable mention. Yeah, that's, again, J.K. Simmons, what a, what a, what a treasure. That's so good. Uh, what was your runner-up? Actually, also a J. Jonah Jameson line where he is, um, you know, the city's in turmoil, crime is going up, and uh, he's kind of starting to monologue about how much he misses Spider-Man. And he says, Spider-Man was a hero. I just... Couldn't see it. He was a, a thief, a criminal. He stole my suit. He's a menace to the entire city. I want that wall-crawling arachnid prosecuted. I want him strung up by his web. I want Spider-Man! <laughs> <laughs> it just immediately flips, you know. I, I love uh, how they played that scene. And just like that, that kind of the comic book anger, him shouting at the open window at the end is just great. Well, he plays, I think what's brilliant about it is he takes the larger in life aspect of, of the comic book nature of the characters and of the universe, but he leans into the Broadway uh, stage performance uh, as opposed to uh, mustache twirling and making it cheesy in the movie. He just kind of leans into the larger in life aspect. It almost feels like a great stage performance in the movie. It, it, and I, almost, I don't know if Raimi directed it that way, but that's how it comes off to me. Probably Ramey directing and just J.K. Simmons being a phenomenal actor. Uh, what was your what was your winner? And heck, we may match up on this too. Winner, it's uh, got to be the Aunt May uh, inspirational monologue of uh, I think there's a hero in all of us. 
that was also my winner. Yeah, we, we matched up on it. Wow, second matchup. Again? What? Did we just become best friends? Yep. Well, he knows a hero when he sees one. Too few characters out there flying around like that, saving old girls like me. Lord knows, kids like Henry need a hero. Courageous, self-sacrificing people, setting examples for all of us. Everybody loves a hero. People line up for them, cheer them, scream their names, and years later they'll tell how they stood in the rain for hours just to get a glimpse of the one who taught him to hold on a second longer. I believe there's a hero in all of us that keeps us honest, gives us strength, makes us noble, and finally allows us to die with pride, even though sometimes we have to be steady and, and give up the thing we want the most, even our dreams. The emotional moment that it carries between Aunt May and Peter, the delivery by that, the, the actress, Rosemary Harris. I mean, just, it's perfect. Uh, yeah, it's not, no surprise we matched up. Well, it ends up being a revelatory moment for Peter and that uh, ultimately leads to him returning as Spider-Man. He realizes what he has to do and what his destiny is. She, she kind of clears the, the fog for him and helps him see, see the way. Yeah, it, it, much in the way that Uncle Ben would, you know, um, so what was your uh, what were your honorable mentions? Uh, honorable mentions, uh, it's at the end. Uh, it's just a great delivery by Dunst uh, when uh, they're kissing and Mc- there's a siren and McGuire looks up like, oh, what do I uh, do? And she's like, go get him, Tiger. Such a classic line. It's it, We've heard it before, but the delivery's great. And in that moment, we know that Peter Parker's finally found happiness and balance in his life as Spider-Man and as a, a human being. I like the elevator exchange where he uh, has to take the elevator down since he's lost his powers and how Sparks' character comments on a Spidey costume. Looks uncomfortable. Uh, it gets kind of itchy. It rides up in the crotch a little bit, too. I knew you were going to pick that. <laughs> it's just a funny moment uh, having the, the meta humor about the costume there with uh, with the elevator scene. But in addition to the Hal Sparks cameo, you do have another cameo by a great comedian, Donnell Rawlings, who's, I would say, most famously known for being a regular on a Chappelle show. Uh, he has a great line near the beginning of the film uh, when Peter Parker is interchanging, becoming Spider-Man, and he's trying to deliver pizzas. Stole that guy's pizzas. On top of that, a little bit later, whenever he shows up with the pizzas, and it's kind of become an internet meme since then, but he says, Pizza time. That's one that's kind of carried with it. Probably the most memed line from the film. Uh, another great line, and I almost was a, it was a contender for runner up or winner, is. He's just a kid. No older than my son. And it's just a very vulnerable moment that we get to see Spider-Man where he's recovering after stopping the train. It just It's a very truthful, real moment in the movie, and I, it just resonates and clicks. I, 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 love, I love it. Yeah, it puts things into perspective for a lot of New Yorkers so that they just never would have expected that. Uh, my last honorable mention is just, I, I kept it in here because it's just a cheesy 
Spider-Man line, but it's classically cheesy where he's in a fight and he has a little one-liner quip back to the villain. And it's in the bank uh, whenever he flips the bag back to Doc Ock and says, You filthy animal. (laughs) It's classic, again, the classic cheesy of Spider-Man where he's trying to make those jokes. And really the... The Tom Holland Spider-Man films, he he does it very well in those in those movies too, or with with those little quips. So, uh, one and last honorable mention is Doc Ock when he says, "I will not die a monster." Moving on to Judge Bob's recasting court, where Warren and I recast the film with today's stars. All rise for the honorable Judge Bob presiding. Gentlemen, you may be seated. Recasting court is now in session. Counselors, I look forward to hearing your notes. And your arguments. Let's get right into it here. We're going to hear uh, arguments today for Jay, Jonah, Jameson, May Parker, Harry Osborne, Dr. Otto Octavius, Mary Jane Watson, and Peter Parker. Make it, take it rules. I believe that leaves with Phil. Starting us off today for Jay, Jonas, Jameson. Who'd you have as a casting? Jay, Jonah, Jameson. Uh, this was... It's very difficult to recast this role. Number one, because there is a current running franchise of Spider-Man in which they brought back the same actor for J. Jonah Jameson. Spoiler alert for those who haven't seen Far From Home. You want a guy that can, you know, command the room, that has the charisma, but a little, a lot of snarkiness and just, just, just a miserable person to be around. But again, commanding. Thought of Nicolas Cage at first, but it didn't feel like the right type of wackiness to that and the right type of eccentricity. I went with Walton Goggins. All right. And uh, Warren, who did you cast? Impressive. Uh, well, there's a number of actors I thought of. Uh, almost went comedically. I thought of uh, Will Arnett, Rob Riggle, Terry Crews. But then I'm like, you know what? You need a character actor of the highest order. So I, I ended up going with Sam Rockwell. I, I, I want an actor who could just completely come to the set and has created this whole other person <laughs> And is ready to riff all day long in improv. And you know that's what J.K. Simmons did. His performance has a Broadway stage energy to it. And I feel like Sam Rockwell would just cr- crush that. Absolutely be great as Jameson. At this stage of Rockwell's career, would this be the equivalent of McConaughey's like Lincoln commercials? Why is he doing this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's to pay for the Malibu Beach House. I mean, why else would you be in a Marvel movie at this point? All right. To Warren's credit, um, I also considered Sam Rockwell, but I, I know we have some big titles coming up near the end of the season. I kind of wanted to save him. I, I I think I've already used him one time. So, you, I mean, you've got J.K. Simmons, Sam Rockwell. They're in the same class of character actors, but Walton Goggins is on the cusp, and I feel like the, it, it, this is a guy, this is an actor or a character, I should say, that this is almost like a comic book. He's jumping out of the page of the comic book. Like, that's what you need from that, and... Walton Goggins got the animation, the over-the-topness to to do that on, on the screen. Yeah, they're both great castings. Uh, we're going to move on to Mae Parker as I think Warren hit this one. Warren, floor is yours. Good job on uh, J. Jonah Jameson. All right. Okay, Mae Parker. Um, this is one of the – I started to think of Kim Basinger, great actress. Um, at, at that stage of her career, I think it would be pretty good. But you know what? I'm like, you know what? No. This is my recasting. I have an infinite budget. I'm going big, okay? So then I'm like, I'm going to go Meryl Streep. And then I'm like, you know what? Viola Davis. Viola Davis is perfect for this. Maybe I'm just, 
it's not quite uh, is a, a triple axle type performance required like a fences. But you talk about like a motherly character who is a, a strong uh, character who provides uh, comfort and leadership to Peter. I, I think Vala Davis would be if I had a dream, dream cast recasting, it's Vala Davis. All right. All right. And uh, Phil, who did you cast for me? Yeah, it, yeah, you you pull out the big guns for that for May Parker. Geez, I mean, you're <laughs> this is a a minor role, and I did consider Meryl Streep because she would be perfect for that. You know, that uh, you know Aunt May, but very motherly and uh, very much has a huge emotional moment with with Peter in the film, uh, and then an inspiring monologue as well. Uh, I went with Mary Steenburgen, and she fits those qualities. In the same sense of Viola Davis does, I mean, again, I can see where you went with there. I think we were on the same page of why we picked the actors, the actresses that we did. Uh, I just feel like, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I, I just feel like this would be a, a role fit for her. I would never put the caliber actress of Viola Davis or of Meryl Streep in such a, a role like May Parker. Eh, well, you know, I know they probably wouldn't do it, but again, my recasting, she is perfect for it if we're just going off behaviors and actions. Uh, but here's the thing with your, here's the problem with your recasting. May Parker is the type of character when Peter does something wrong, she grounds him. She sends him to his room. She takes away his phone, whatever, depending on it, what age he is. Mary Steenburgen as May Parker, she's getting run over. She's not grounding him. She's not. She has. She's just a loving. Uh, uh, I I don't aunt. know. She gave Doc uh, she, Brown the business in Back to the Future Part Three, so you know, I, I she 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 has that capability. <laughs> so May Parker goes to Phil. Well done. I love Mary Steenburgen. I think she's fantastic. Um, moving on to Harry Osborn. Phil, who do you have cast for Harry Osborn? Well, I thought of. I thought of Sam Claflin, uh, who was uh, Moriarty Holmes in the Enola Holmes film. He's in um, uh, in the Hunger Games movies. You know, a good fit for that, I think, like that kind of rich boy type, you know, pompousy. Um, considered Adam Brody uh, as well. But I settled on, you know, I had to dip into the Stranger Things pool. Joe Keery, the hair, Steve himself, as the, as the rich boy who, uh, you know, he... He's had the silver spoon in his mouth and he thinks he's smarter than he actually is. And he's going to, in less than a couple of years, do more than his dad, who was an established than had ever dreamed and ultimately fails. Joe Keery's the type that could play that actor that, you know, falls on his face that way. Interesting. And Warren, who do you have here? Before I counter Joe Keery, and I see where you're coming from, because I, too, started to go younger thinking, oh, Spider-Man's a high school kid, you know, because that's what we uh, tend to associate with him as a Peter Parker's a character, his age being an adolescent uh, teenager, high school. So I thought of Tanner Buchanan from Cobra Kai plays Robbie, but then I started watching the movie, and I'm like, oh, Spider-Man 2, they're in college. These are young adults. So kind of scrapped that approach. Um White collar, like you said, silver spoon. So you're on you're on the money there, um, and he's just very polished, uh, educated. Uh, has a very you know an, an Ivy League kind of vibe to him. Went with Lucas Hedges. Uh, felt like he's perfect for it. Uh, just the character kind of cut from that that kind of cloth. I feel like he would embody that. Mm. Didn't they go to the same high school though? Didn't that, that help Peter know him? So he's not really an Ivy League school. They went to the same. I said he has the feel. Yeah, I mean he does. Vibe. And Joe the Carey Oxford, does too. I mean, look Harvard at that hair. Type Come of, on. I mean, well, James Franco does. That's where I'm getting that uh, <laughs> uh, intuition. Um, but hey, Carey's great. But I, I think he plays more high school kids. Uh, he still is playing high school characters. I don't know if he's 
passing off as a college kid yet. I mean, he's right on the cusp there. I hate to disqualify him just on where he is age-wise, but uh, even type, I don't think we've seen enough from him to put this him in this role. I mean, outside of Stranger Things, has he done a film? I mean, this is a big movie, man. This is a big role. I, I need somebody who's done a little bit more. And again, no knock on Joe Keery. I gotta say, I I uh, I absolutely I kind of like Joe Keery in the Spider-Man role. He's got that playful, mischievous, witty. You know, there, there's just a lot of things that that fit him there. Where again, Harry is the slighted little rich boy trying to live up to his dad's. Um, but he's a little too goofy, or, or something. A little too goofy but, for. I think Warren. Harry. Warren was talking about that Ivy League feel, but I, I think it's just that the seriousness that comes from being kind of jaded and felt overlooked, but having that same rich mentality, that silver spoon mentality, where everything's been given to you except for the one thing you want, which is respect. And so, yeah, trying to live up to your dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it it's an interesting dynamic. Um, so uh, Lucas Head just takes this one. Well done. No, that's a good point. I actually just looked at it from the cocky angle. I didn't really consider that. So that's no, I, I, I will, I will, I will honor that decision. That was very good. Well, gee, thanks. Appreciate it. <laughs> We're going to move into Doctor Otto Octavius. Warren, floor is yours. Go. Well, this is a character, and and this is what makes the this villain so compelling is that he's a good natured person that's overcome by evil uh, through loss and kind of goes mad. Similar to the Green Goblin in a sense, it goes mad through through loss. But um, thought of uh, Mahershala Ali. That's good. Colin Firth. I wanted to go with like a silent type of actor who when they turn, it's all the more shocking that that they're doing some, you know, sinister acts and they have uh they're they're the villain i I just and that's very much alfred molina i mean he's a soft-spoken guy uh to see him he i don't think he's played any villains before or since i went with mark rylance great actor really embody the scientist the uh intellect uh uh, and having uh you know a very um well-meaning ambition for the greater good of mankind initially and then it just kind of goes off the rails especially when he loses his wife. Yeah, and Phil, who do you have cast here? Yeah, it's yeah, this is one of what makes this movie so great. One of the many reasons is that you have a compelling villain that you can understand their motivations. They're not just like, "I'm evil because I'm evil." Ah, you know, you want to kind of see that point of view and and kind of consider things from their side. So, you have to have somebody like Warren said that, you know, can can be the scientist type and you root for him. And, but at the same time, when he turns, he makes a great bad guy, but the you still like him somewhat. And you can still kind of understand where he's coming from. I went with Christoph Waltz, who we've seen play uh, a very pure good guy in Django. And then also a very not good guy in, uh, in glorious bastards. I mean, the range of this actor, and yes, I may it may be overcasting him, but I think you need a great actor in roles like this, in great villain roles, like you put Michael Keaton as the vulture in Homecoming. You need somebody like that, like Christoph Waltz uh, in the Doc Ock role. Dude, what's up with this? You're going with the Tarantino Theater Company? That's usually my move. I mean, you got uh, Goggins in the Jameson role, and now you got... Uh... Waltz uh, is Doc You got to have a big name uh, for the I villain. I love Christoph Waltz. Got to have the, th- the big name. Yeah, I love Christoph Waltz, but uh, uh, no, you know, I, I, we've seen him play a villain before, and, and I think because Christoph Waltz has played Hans Landa, he's probably never going to play a villain again. <clears throat> James Bond. Well, then I say yeah. that, and then he's done. And then he's done Blowfield, but. Uh, 
I, I just I, it's now, especially since he's on Blowfield. I mean, I really think his he's going to be very picky on the villain roles he does. I, I think uh, I would say the know, only one that he it, could step into at this point would be a comic book or you know that type of role because he's played more serious types in a drama. That th- this is a, this type of villain is different than the. I'm other. not saying he can't do it. He's just he's already got two. Well, Bond kind of does qualify as a that is an iconic. I mean, Blowfield is the Joker of the James Bond film franchise. Listen, it's Christoph Waltz. He would crush it. You know, I'm not whether or not he would do it. Yeah, he would crush great. it. He'd be great. Yeah. I just think, fitting wise, with uh, you know a good character gone bad, it would be all the more shocking of the revelation if you have someone like a Mark Rylance who's soft spoken, and then who still has the um, he has this uh, quality beyond the eyes that could sell the uh, the 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 sinister turn that the character uh, ultimately has. Well, essentially so far, everyone that's been cast has either been given an Oscar or been in movies with Oscars. So why the hell not? Christoph Waltz takes this one. Let's just keep that whole thing alive. Hey, Rylance won an Oscar too. Oh, he did. That's right. Ah, yeah, Steven Spielberg, Bridge of Spies. Come on guys. Oh, man. One of the deep knowledge. One of Tony too. He uh, specialized in, uh, uh, at the old Vic theater well, it's over in uh in london he would play the uh he would specialize in playing the female parts in shakespeare plays he's a, he's a really good actor getting into the top of the call sheet we are all tied up gentlemen we're going to start off things here with mary jane watson and phil floor's yours not one but two times i'm dipping into the stranger things pool natalia dyer this was actually a very difficult role to recast Mary Jane Watson. What? What are you talking about? I mean, Stranger Things, come on. Believe it or not, I had I did struggle uh, for this, but uh, I actually bounced around with a few names. And I think what makes it so difficult is just the dip that you have the Kirsten Dunst take, you have the recent Zendaya take. It's okay. So what type of Mary Jane Watson is in this film? Uh, however, Natalia Dyer has got that kind of damsel in distress quality, which is a take is that that's that type of take for this iteration of the Spider-Man fr- franchise for this Mary Jane Watson character. Uh, and uh, I just, you know, I just imagine her in some of the scenes, um, you know, the emotional moments with Peter Parker getting rescued by Spider-Man. Uh, I could just see her, see her on the screen perfectly doing it. All right, Warren, what do you got? Well, I went with uh, Anya Taylor Joy, who is the it actress of the time. She has been an up and comer. I saw her in Split and I'm like, who the hell is that? And I went on a deep dive into her, finding out who she was and looked into some of her work. She's really great. I discovered her somewhat uh, uh, early and now she's blown up with what the the Queen's Gambit on Netflix. But I I think when you have an actress who plays the the romantic uh, uh, heart of your film, uh, you need an actress that can carry the, the that part of the, the movie, and I think Anya Taylor-Joy would be up to the task, and that is a tall order to ask of an actress. You can't just ask anyone to do that. And again, no knock on Natalie Dyer, but she hasn't done a lot of feature films. I mean, you're going with people that outside of, uh, of being a supporting character in Stranger Things, you're going to ask them to step into a studio franchise comic book film uh, with a, a lot of pressure big budget and, 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 and step in and do that. I mean, that's, that's a big ass. Oh, you kind of like what they did with Zendaya who had only done Disney channel shows. Uh, Zendaya, she's been a golden child <laughs> since she started. She's been uh, like a, a, you know, propped up like a, you know, like a LeBron James prospect actress from the get go. No, I mean, I love the, They've been singing her. Praises. I love the Anya Taylor joy. I did, I did consider her. I just, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to steer away from the it girl factor, but I, 
definitely see where you're coming from there. Why well, stay away from the it girl factor? I almost went with Joey King. I think another great. I literally almost casted Joey King. I think she's so great. But uh, I think Anya Taylor Joy is just a, a, talking about specificity playing Mary Jane and being the romantic center. And I think you have to have an actress who can play multiple dimensions here because you're playing an actress within a movie, yeah. and that's not easy to do. And I, Kirsten Dunst is great at it, and I think Anya Taylor-Joy would be good at it too. This one, you guys, this one's really close for me. Uh, I, I, I can see this uh, leaning towards Natalie Dyer because of the damsel in distress. The, the There's just, again, the character, the movie, the way that they did this. I can see the Anna. Anya Tyler Joy as well. Um, Anya Taylor Joy was in Split. She's been in big films. She's delivered on the big stage. Uh, and again, I, I don't, I'm not in the business of insulting actors. Natalie Dyer is good in her own right, but I just haven't seen enough from her outside of Stranger Things. What? Tell me something, please. I mean, she does not. She has not been in a lot of big movies. I need an actress, especially Spider Man. You don't hire rookies to be in your film franchise. I mean, look at Marvel nowadays. They bring in the big guns. You bring in experienced actors, hit actors, or ones that have statues in their trophy case. Okay, that's the superhero is the payday. That's the the, the mountaintop for actors nowadays. You go with Anya Taylor Joy. Get the hell out of here. Come on. Well stated, Phil. What's your counter? I, I mean, Stranger Things. No. Yeah. <laughs> oh, get out of here! Come on. All right, Anya Taylor Joy. Here we go. Yeah, shit. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, Warren seems very passionate. I, I, I cannot. I str- I did struggle with the recasting. I feel like she's would be a good fit, but he, he's definitely more. Uh, he, uh, he has a stronger conviction about his recasting on that one than I did. I'll, I'll give him that. Moving into the very top of the call sheet, we've got Peter Parker, which will be our tiebreaker should we need it for obvious reasons. So, uh, Warren, floor is yours. Who do you have? I've been watching Cobra Kai, and I went with Cholo Maridrena. Yeah, so I know what Ward's trying to say uh, because I actually cast the same actor, Cholo Maridrena, as my Peter Parker as well. So, yeah, that's a perfect for- fit for it. Did we just become best friends? Not just a friend, a partner. I think it may be our first tiebreaker matchup, uh, and maybe it's because Warren and I have been watching a lot of Cobra Kai lately. We just plowed through the series uh, recently. But, I mean, when you think about the small actor pool that can that can play this role that you'd want to see as Peter Parker and Spider-Man, I mean, the, the list is short. Uh, my initial thought was low-hanging fruit, Timothy Chalamet. I mean, it's right there. You feel like he's in the same ballpark as uh, Tom Holland, but it just it didn't feel right. I just I, I just can't see him playing both sides. So yeah, Sholo is he is he would be an awesome Spider Man and a great Peter Parker. I think Chalamet would be a great Peter Parker. I don't think he would be a good Spider Man. Right. That's yeah. why I didn't go with him. I think he'd be a great Peter Parker, not a good. Like Spider-Man. again, there's so many actors that would make a great Batman, but not a great Bruce Wayne. And you have to have one that can do both. Yeah, so. Exactly. Well, gentlemen, with the uh, tie there and on the buzzer beater, uh, score was three, Warren, two, Phil going into it. So by default, Warren, congratulations. You've just won Spider-Man 2 recasting. Yeah. All right. Victory! Recasting court is adjourned. Fan theory time. The fan theory is that Alfred Molina's Doc Ock is interconnected throughout all his films. We have the he became a monster. He had the he was scared of spiders and 
We had the spider ton of running and the Indiana Jones film. No, I'm kidding. That's not it. Uh, the, uh, that'd be a terrible <laughs> I was say thing. Raiders and Spider-Man, not his whole body of work. He's been in too many great movies. I mean, just too many different types of movies. No, absolutely not. Um, so one of the things, one of the questions that they're in the, that is in the film, this is the real fan theory, is that, you know, how did Spider-Man just suddenly lose his powers and then they come back? It's never explained. You know, that doesn't really have. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't have a uh, Fortress of Solitude where he's like going into the, the crystal booth and the, the, the screen turns blue and he loses his powers. Well, what the hell? What the hell? Yeah. So they, it was it's never explained. They never revisited. So um, there was a there's a video on YouTube. I have to give credit for it under the, the film theorist channel where they actually approached this and they said that Peter Parker was actually coping with PTSD, given what everything that had happened to him. And you really, and it makes a lot of sense, you know, coming off of the death of Uncle Ben, uh, who's a father figure, uh, of uh, Dr. Norman Osborn, who in a, a lot of ways was a father figure. And through both his actions or inaction, in both cases, he is in some ways responsible for both deaths. Uh, the entire movie, it's just a, a split of his Peter Parker versus Spider-Man personality, which, I mean, you watch that film, his life goes into shit in so many ways, it just low after low after low just kind of you know and ultimately his bottom point is whenever he admits to aunt may uh, you know what had happened uh that night and then also seeing mary jane get engaged so just dealing with that is is essentially that the, the the trauma of that is what it caused him to lose his powers and, and the, the video makes a lot of great arguments of like how this could affect you mentally and coping with that so it's more the psychological impact is why he lost his powers it's just you know dealing with all of that yeah i think that's why it doesn't take you out of the movie even they don't address it it because of what's happened it feels natural that maybe he got out of touch with his powers uh, somehow well i mean at the end of the day he is a human and going through all that stuff is going to take its toll so you know even though those were the a lot of the source of the problem was him not being able to be peter parker the moment that he actually takes a little time for himself, focuses on the things he wants to, it kind of helps him recover from that in some way and decide what he really wants to be. And then it does culminate with him having that uh, cathartic moment with Aunt May and, and where things are more clearly defined as far as the decision of who he needs to be, who he wants to be. And that's how he's able to return so quickly. Overcome so it's more that. so the PTSD and the recovery from that or the begin, the beginning to recover from that is, um, is kind of explains the power loss there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I buy that. And we'll close out the episode discussing the legacy of Spider-Man two, uh, considered one of the best and most influential superhero movies of all time. It, it's a high watermark for the Spider-Man franchise and for the superhero genre. And it, it highlighted what was wrong with most superhero movies because those films focused on the powers instead of the humanity of the characters. Not only with Peter Parker, but with the villain too. Yeah. You can't just like, you can't just have some justice league. I'm evil, you know, because I'm evil type of villain. You have to have oh, like Steppenwolf. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah. It's <laughs> the, one of the I mean, worst any, movie villains ever or superhero super villains ever. Yeah. Because you can't just have someone that's just evil purely for being evil. It's not a video game. We just hack and slash. I mean, you have to, in some ways, the audience, you know, has to make that has to have some sort of connection with the villain. 
I mean, they don't have to, but that's what separates the mediocre bad films to the tr- the ones that truly elevate the genre. Yeah, and the superhero genre right there with uh, Dark Knight and the Avengers, two of the other superhero films we've covered so far. I think Spider-Man 2 belongs in that elite class of, of, of the best of the best. It does. I mean, this was a precursor to the to the Dark Knight. It was you know, four years before that, one year before Batman Begins. So, you, I mean, you have to think that this was already, you know, Batman Begins definitely would have already been in production. But And this was four years before the MCU with Iron Man. That's true. That's also a great point. Yeah, so... You have to think that Hollywood saw the blueprint of what they did, the accolades, and saw that's like, okay, no more do do we have to play by those rules, and it doesn't have to be campy. I mean, yes, the the Tim Burton Batman was great in a lot of ways, but you know that that franchise fell off a cliff as as we talked about earlier. The late great Joel Schumacher, as great a film director as he was, the the, the two Batman films he did was not his high points. Yeah, of course, I mean they're appreciated now for you know the cult kind of status, but they're definitely not held as far as I the still prestige. rewatch them. So yeah, yeah, they're fun. Yeah, Batman <laughs> for it's a fun. Yeah, um, you're not putting me in the cooler. <laughs> and then the prestige that so many superhero films aim for now the genre kind of was pointed that direction. You know, if that's just not what it was back in the Schumacher Batman days. And back when Raimi first took the reins of Spider-Man, it went in that direction because of this film. Mm -hmm. That's why you, that's why Hollywood wanted to try to strive for your Kevin Feige's wanted to try to strive for elevating the material, your Christopher Nolan's to, to make it better than it, it had ever been before. Yeah, the Nolan trilogy and the Raimi trilogy uh, set the standard and, and have been very influential on the genre. And Spider-Man 2 has been, uh, the influence has been massive on the MCU when you look at how they approach the, 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 the other characters in the universe and connecting the MCU. Bright costumes, humor, a wholesome tone, very much like with Captain America. You, you get a lot of that with, with those movies, uh, especially the first Avenger. Uh, optimism, not cynicism, uh, kind of going uh, against the grain of maybe the Warner Brothers DC approach. And uh, they embrace the comic roots, and we saw Nolan do that also. Some, As we've established, the best superhero films embrace their comic book roots and go with their best stories. Yeah, that's what's great about Spider-Man and why he's been one of the most bankable superheroes is that you know he comes from a point of positivity and morality um whereas you know so many franchises go for the dark tone or you know with somebody like superman who's very popular they just really don't have much of a personality so the connection to spider-man for the audience goes beyond that because not only does he you know he's easy fun to watch he's got the humor there but you also can connect to him and the trials and tribulations and the hard decisions that he's got to make there's a reason they keep rebooting this franchise and why spider-man is you know see the first film came out in 2002 so in less than 20 years we've had three actors play spider-man you know a myriad of films and appearances but the audiences still love it they'll still watch an animated version of it like into the Spider-Verse. It just, it's, we can't get enough. Well, this franchise, when you talk about the, the, the Spider-Man franchise in film, uh, you know, the, the character in comics first appeared in 1962, but Nicholas Hammond portrayed Spider-Man. The first actor to play Spider-Man in a live action, anything was in a 1977 TV movie, played him three times. That was first time we'd ever seen Spider-Man in costume. 
Uh, but the Sam Raimi trilogy was the first feature film live-action Spider-Man we got. And there's been eight solo movies. Eight solo Spider-Man movies so far. You have the Sam Raimi trilogy from 2002 to 2007. Mark Webb's two Amazing Spider-Man movies from 2012 and 2014. And then the MCU Spider-Man movies where we got uh, Homecoming and Far From Home. And Holland has now played Spider-Man, what, uh, five times? He's got the two two Spider-Man movies, the two Avengers movies, and then uh, the Captain America Civil War, right? Yeah, five. Yeah, and then and then again you have Spider Man into into the Spider Verse. So well. we're getting our we're getting our uh, we're getting our fill with uh, the Spider Man on screen. But I think Spider Man and Batman are the two most portrayed superheroes in terms of solo films in cinema history. Uh, Batman also has eight solo feature films. Uh, he has the the two with Burton, the two with Schumacher. You have the one with Adam West and in, uh, uh, in in the '60s, and then you got the Nolan trilogy. And then, of course, Justice League. Yeah, uh, and then you've got the Batman coming. Well, out. Well, that's not a solo. Uh, Those aren't solo. That's true. You're right. You're a solo. I'm talking film, solo. So yeah, yeah. That, that's, Spider-Man that's and Batman point. are the most represented in the movies. Uh, themes of Spider-Man 2, this movie has a lot of heart. And we talked about love being at the, one of the center uh, uh, storylines in the film. But the main theme you have to say is choice. It, it's if you're gifted and cursed with powers, do you choose to give up your life to save the world? Or what, how, how do you play that? And that's an interesting uh, human question to a, a, a supernatural, extraordinary circumstance. Yeah, and it poses it in a way to where you can believably see both sides of it because without watching the film, you're like, who would ever want to not be Spider-Man? Of course, I want to be Spider-Man. Yeah, uh, everybody does. But then you see the sacrifice that it takes on Peter Parker and you're like, man, that dude's life freaking sucks. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's uh, Other than apart. the times he's Spider-Man. Yeah, exactly. the rest of it's falling apart as Peter Parker. Yeah, and the element of choice is in almost every scene. I mean, even when he's delivering pizzas, uh, it's either deliver the pizzas on time, save your job, or save the kids in traffic. I mean, the, the, that theme is constant throughout the film. Other themes, responsibility and power, of course, the the, the big key words in the uh, Spider-Man uh, lore. Probably and, the main uh, reason we don't need any type of origin stories anymore is because that is so widely known, that that, that uh, great power comes great responsibility. It's just like, you're never going to top that, so just everyone knows it. It's, you know, why even try? Pop culture, uh, 312 connections with other media. Uh, it was spoofed in uh, the superhero movie in 2008, SNL, of course, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which when you talk about the Sp Spider-Man franchise, the fact that this franchise has had so many successful entries in different mediums be the top highest art form in that entry, whether it's the animated movie with Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse or the two video games, this is... The, the video game based on this movie with the actors voicing the characters, but the gameplay, it's probably the only movie video game that is actually any good. I mean, every movie video game sucks, but this hey, one was I'm, I'm great. glad you brought that up because I remember the first Spider-Man game that came out. Um, it's like you couldn't actually go down to the street level. You could just kind of swing or it was, it, it, again, laid the groundwork, but it wasn't good. Spider-Man 2, the video game, was phenomenal it was like gta spider-man in the time exactly when getting games like that i mean you could go around the city it, the voice actors great mission i mean it was 
is a phenomenal game. It's very, I remember very playing it. It was great. And there's yeah. been dozens of video games on 15 different platforms uh, for Spider-Man. Uh, a very notable follow-up was the PS4 game that came out a couple years ago. That has also received high acclaim and is considered one of the greatest superhero video games of all time. Of course, right there with his uh, regular nemesis and rival, uh, Batman, uh, the Arkham games. Yeah, they are the best of the video game comic book superheroes. Spider-Man with Marvel, Batman with DC. They're competitors there, uh, absolutely. Uh, to back up a little bit, when the references to the Into the Spider-Verse, I, I just wanted to give those a shout out. I've seen that movie a lot, Into the Spider-Verse. Um, it's the opening scene. Uh, it shows like you know the different universes of Spider-Man and like kind of what he's done. And it's funny because it'll show like the animated version of like Spider-Man and all the situations like holding the train and fighting Doc Ock, do all this stuff. And then it even has the, where him like dancing, like from the really <laughs> bad scene in Spider-Man three, it kind of makes a joke on that too. So uh, it's a great film, but yeah, it, it references all the past Spider-Mans in its in their own way. And Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse won the Oscar for best animated feature. So that, yeah. I, and when I, I mean, I'm a twister on this one, that film came out in 2018. We have the, you know, Movie has to be out for at least five years, um, sometimes to the day, like in the Mad Max situation. Or once uh, upon a time we, in Hollywood. Right, but before we we'll cover. Yeah, so that movie, 2023, we're doing it. So there you yeah, go. Yeah, uh, fair enough. Um, uh, it was also uh, Spider-Man 2 is referenced a couple times in The Simpsons, a couple times on Jeopardy, uh, Benchwarmers, The Holiday, Eagle Eye, the uh, Shia LaBeouf and uh, Michelle uh, Monaghan uh, movie, uh, if you remember that action flick, and uh, The Incredibles 2. Uh, also, a couple of big sitcoms. My name is Earl. Big Bang Theory. Uh, really, a, a stamp uh, pedigree. You make it on Big Bang Theory, man. I think it's pretty, pretty, pretty badass if uh, Sheldon or, or, or Leonard's uh, referencing uh, yeah, your, your superhero movie. Uh, Deadpool one and two, Castle, La La Land, T uh, two, Train Spotting. So just uh, just a handful of of, of uh, the movies that have referenced Spider Man two. All-time list for Spider Man two. It was on Empire's five hundred greatest movies of all time. It ranked 411th american film institute all-time list nominated for three of the all-time list top 10 fantasy films 100 most inspiring films and 100 greatest films of all time and sam raimi was very lucky to get to finish his superhero trilogy uh, very few directors have ultimately been able to do that it, it was because of the success of spider-man 2 that made that happen yeah, and I don't know why the studios get like a big head about that and think they know more. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but it's like let 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 the person finish, whoever it is. I mean, they're they've done good work unless they've just driven into the ground while replacing. And I know that Raimi had some challenges with Spider-Man three and not getting to do what he wanted to, but uh, I mean, just I'll never understand that. Yeah, lots of film directors have done two but the studio for or didn't work out to do the third one and there's a lot of them just a handful here burton and schumacher with the batman films they each did two joss whedon did the first two avengers films didn't do the follow-ups uh, you also had guillermo del toro do the first two hellboys and john favreau do the first two iron mans and didn't do the third one nolan and Raimi are on the mount rushmore of film directors that have done superhero trilogies i would say james gunn will be joining them shortly once good Guardians of the Galaxy 3 comes out. And Raimi is slated to direct Doctor Strange 2 in 2022. So he's dipping back in the superhero pool here in a uh, very soon. Which might pull some Spider-Mans from some past Spider-Mans back into the fray. 
We talked about the Spider-Man. Uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man 3 is coming up, and there's been rumors that Tobey Maguire may reprise his role as Peter Parker Spider-Man in a different parallel universe along with Andrew Garfield. And I got to tell you, if they somehow get all the live-action Spider-Mans in the same movie, my head will explode. Yeah, that's, that'd be nuts. That'd be That'd cool. be amazing. So either this, this podcast will either age very well or very not well as a result. <laughs> <laughs> And Tom McCarthy of Variety summed it up best when he said, quote, the pleasure is doubled in Spider-Man 2. Crackerjack entertainment from start to finish. This rousing yarn about a reluctant superhero and his equally conflicted friends and enemies improves in every way on its predecessor and is arguably about as good a live-action picture as anyone's ever made using comic book characters, unquote. That is going to do it for this episode of Replay Value. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and if you love what you hear, take the time to rate, review, and share with a friend. You can visit us on our website, replayvaluepod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at replayvaluepod. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every other Tuesday, and we'll see you then. Bye! This has been a Waldo Pickles production.